The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to another Liberty Global Liberty Alliance podcast. This is Jason Poblet coming to you again this week from Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. Today we're going to talk about probably one topic, but I think we may bleed into two or three topics. Transitional justice, a, a long time favorite topic of mine, and of course, hostage issues, which we had some news this week with the announcement and the creation of the a congressional hostage task force uh, headed up by Congressman, the great Congressman Ted Deutsch, longtime champion of, uh, of these issues, and Congressman Hill uh, as well. They were uh, doing a press conference yesterday. We were over there at the Capitol, and uh, we, we welcome uh, the caucus to the, the battle on hostages. And today's guest, uh, Dr. Danielle Gilbert, uh, Danny Gilbert, uh, is not only an expert in this, but she's done a lot of work in the field, and we're going to chat with her about this. Uh, Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm really I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you for, for joining us. And uh, for those of you who don't know her, we're going to include a lot of background information on her on the program uh, page on the website, but I'm going to give a brief introduction. She's currently an assistant professor of military and strategic studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy. She received her PhD uh, from GW University, George Washington University, which is where I met her a few years ago here in Washington, D.C. And um, she was doing, I think you were doing back then your, your, your PhD, you were a candidate in residence, correct? Uh, correct, at the Institute for Security and Conflict Studies at the time? Precisely. That's what yes. you were doing, right? Um, mm-hmm. She's done a lot of research, which I'm not going to list all of it, uh, but it's a phenomenal list, and I will publish several of these on, online along with her bio before she did her, her doctoral work. She served four years on Capitol Hill, including as a senior legislative assistant and appropriation staffer. Oh, you're an appropriations person. I forgot that. I, I worked with the, uh, the Ways and Means Committee. So you have an authorizer appropriator conference. Uh, we'll, we'll explain to people what that means in a minute. And then she Powerful worked as a, Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting combo, uh, especially for the members on those committees. But uh, and she did a lot of policy advice on several presidential and congressional campaigns. So, Daniel, before we jump into the subject matter, I think you wanted to uh, say something, a special disclaimer. I do. So I um, just want to share that the views that I express on the podcast today are mine and do not represent the U.S. Air Force Academy, the Department of the Air Force, or the Department of Defense. Which all entities that are lucky to have you, by the way, but I I understand. And um, Thank you so much. So before we jump into... We're going to start with Columbia, but before we jump into that, uh, what what was your experience working with the appropriations folks on the Hill? Uh, because you know, on the authorizing side, you, so you have the check writers and you have the people who raise the revenue, and there's always an interesting dynamic there. Uh, working with the appropriators, what 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 takeaways were there 
uh, for folks who don't know that part of the uh, political policy making space? Mm, that's a that's a great question. So I worked on the Hill. It was quite a long time ago now. It was from 2009 to 2013, and for the very last year of that, my boss um, joined the subcommittee on appropriations on state and foreign operations and related programs. Essentially, that's the subcommittee that funds the State Department, all of our foreign aid, global health programs, things like that. And I had been her foreign policy staffer for quite a long time. And so when she joined that subcommittee, I became the representative to the Appropriations Committee on those subjects. Um, I would say that the most interesting uh, part of that for me, probably twofold. First was how unbelievably bipartisan it was. So everyone who was serving on that subcommittee was completely committed to making sure that the US had a robust foreign assistance and foreign aid budget, that we were supporting these uh, global health programs and um, supporting our allies abroad. Um, and so it was, it was really heartening and encouraging being able to work very, very well across the aisle on all of these different issues that meant so much to me personally and, and meant a lot to our office and to our constituents. I think the other part of that that was really interesting is um, learning kind of the insides of the appropriations process and all of the different ways that legislation can get passed. And sometimes it is putting the money before the actual um, legislation. So for instance, there was, we really were hoping to do something about metastatic cancer and there was not an existing program. And we found a way to increase funding for a specific office um, using the funding mechanism rather than um, passing legislation. And so it became a really interesting insight into all of the different ways that things work on Capitol Hill, that sometimes the money comes first and sometimes the ideas come first, writing things into law. I remember my wife was on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee at the time, and she had very similar experiences. Uh, of course, she's on a authorizing committee, so they don't write the checks, but they are engaged in helping develop policy, especially in that space that you're talking about, which is a very bipartisan, at least it used to be. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know today, uh, but they when it came to the space of human rights and some of the topics we're going to talk about today, it didn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. In most cases, the overwhelming majority of cases when it came to dis you know, distributing aid and helping folks around the world, it was pretty bipartisan. And I remember the big initiative when she was there was the global HIV AIDS uh, project. Mm -hmm. Back then, I think Bush was president, uh, uh, H, uh, W. Bush, and it was a big priority for them. And it was uh pretty phenomenal during that period how quickly product moved when everybody was on the same page if you will and there weren't these partisan and, and, and not even partisan I think at times on the hill you have a lot of territorial issues between committees and jurisdictional questions and but in that space sure. that you were working on it tends to be pretty bipartisan and there's a lot of agreement in moving products so well that's that's great Absolutely. um Let's talk about I also you. Had the distinct, I had the distinct privilege of working on the Hill at the same time as your wife. So um, I was able to learn from her and watch her successes. And I, I feel very grateful for that opportunity. Well, I, I will I will tell her. Well, she'll listen. I've been trying to get her on the show, but she says no. <laughs> she says, I think at some point she, she should host a few of these because she has many great stories and, and I'll let her know. 
maybe maybe you'll encourage her to you should tell her hey you should do a show or two <laughs> maybe she'll do it um pre let's go back how, how you came to all this because we have a so many of our listeners send us feedback how can i get more involved in this space so quickly take us through you know before you graduated i think you went to yale and that's where you did your ba work then you went off and you did some uh, uh, graduate work at the London School of Economics and then eventually GW. But before any of that, the Danny pre-Yale, how did you come to be more interested in the, in the subject matter? And what do you recommend to young people that are interested in a career in this sort of work? Oh, it's a great question. I grew up in a very um, political and very active household. We were always watching the news. We were always talking about current events at the dinner table. And from the time that I was very young, I always wanted to make a difference. I always wanted to be involved in politics. I um, was always really interested in foreign policy specifically. I grew up very interested in studying the Middle East. I spent a lot of time traveling to the Middle East when I was younger. And for a very long time, that was my substantive and regional area of interest and expertise. I went to college knowing that I wanted to study Hebrew and Arabic, and I really always wanted to study the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and spent my summers getting involved in various coexistence programs and internships and things of that nature. I figured out pretty early on when I was in college that whenever I was getting really involved in politics, I missed something about academia. I missed studying. I missed the rigor. I missed kind of very high level intellectual conversations. And whenever I went to academia and when I was studying in college or talking to professors, I found that I really missed not only the action of the political side of things, but the ability to really make a difference in people's lives. Um, you know, you can study things all day in the library, in the classroom, but it for me did not feel as fulfilling as really being engaged in the policy process. And so throughout college, I always felt a little bit kind of torn between these different worlds. One of the things that I started doing was um, trying to get involved in think tank work. So looking at what scholars who were really committed to the policy process were interested in doing. So I interned at various think tanks throughout my college experience and uh, right after undergrad, went to the London School of Economics for a one-year master's program. And when I was finishing up at LSE, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do next with my life. By then, I had decided that I really wanted to pursue a PhD in political science, but I wasn't sure I wanted to go straight there. And um, essentially, I was deciding between doing an intensive Arabic program for a couple of years and really becoming fluent in Arabic or trying mm. to. It's a very challenging language. Challenging or language, yeah. mm -hmm. Extremely. Or moving to Washington and having an opportunity to work on the Hill. And I really wrestled with this. And I thought, well, eventually I want to be an academic, but I want to be the kind of academic who's involved in the policy process, who understands how Washington works, and I thought that the best way for me be, to be able to do that eventually, and also in the meantime, to make a, a difference hopefully in people's lives would be to come work on the Hill for a little bit. And so I 
took this job as a legislative assistant um, and I thought I'd stay maybe a year, maybe two. I ended up staying four years because the job kept getting more exciting. Wow. Um, you know, for example, you bit, that, that you ability bit. to work. You the bug bit, the bug the bug bit you and anybody it, who's worked on the hill you, you you were a house a house rat like um after two years you know they say you spend you make two then you go to four you make you almost you could have made it to ten you know if you stayed five I know, but, <laughs> so I, know. It, it, I think four years is probably not that common an amount of time to stay I think people are kind of either they're shorter or or much much longer but mm -hmm. um, I always knew I, I really wanted to to get that PhD and so um, eventually I left the hill and very intentionally chose the, the PhD program at George Washington University so that I could stay in Washington right. so that I could stay involved in the conversation and and keep up my contacts and attend think tank events and, and things awesome. like that. Um, yeah, so I, I started the PhD program in, in 2013 and I came in 100% convinced I was going to write my dissertation about um, nationalism and women's roles in anti-authoritarian movements in the Middle East. I was completely wow. sold on this particular topic. Wow. <laughs> um, and then I went a very, very different direction. Yeah. I um, was doing my coursework so in the first couple of years of a phd program you're in classes you're you're reading kind of the the canon of the field so that you'll be qualified to teach these classes someday and in the fall of 2014 i was enrolled in a course on political violence so we were reading all the literature about war and genocide and human rights and civil war and terrorism reading what scholars have found on all of these different topics. And coincidentally, the fall of 2014 is when the Islamic State started kidnapping and beheading Westerners. Mm. Now, my interest in following that story as closely as I did really stemmed from my initial interest in the Middle East. I found myself puzzled why there had been violence in Syria since 2011, a long ongoing civil war. The U.S. had lost citizens in Syria since then, but nothing so dramatic and so um, devastating and attention grabbing as the beheadings of American citizens. And um, so I did what what any good student of political science in graduate school does is I turned to the literature and I thought, okay, what, what does political science have to say about this? Why do groups use it? Why do some groups not do this kind of thing? And um, why does the media pay so much attention to it and, and things like that? And yeah. turns out the literature has basically nothing at all to say about hostage taking. And so from that moment on, I was I was committed. I decided that hooked. this was going to be the topic I was up. This is the topic I was going to study. That's awesome. Well, you know, it's interesting because you did you did field work. I think, I think you spent some time in the West Bank in the early two thousands. I think you were did some I work did. in Israel in the West Bank. So, so how did you go from that 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 space and then do field work in in of all places, folks? She was in Colombia, which is not the <laughs> safest place for Americans to be going around doing any sort of research work, much less research work in this in this field. How did that break happen? And what happened when you first did your first field work in Colombia? I think it was in 2017. That's true. That's a, that's a great question. So 
you know, I had come to the graduate program fully planning to be a Middle East scholar. I was brushing up my Arabic, again, very challenging language, but I was really um, planning to eventually conduct my dissertation research in Arabic. And then from the moment that I became so interested in understanding the dynamics of kidnapping and hostage taking, I started thinking about, okay, how do I want to study this? You know, what, what kind of method do I want to use? And where should I study it? And I was really convinced that one of the ways that was important for me to study this topic would be to speak to perpetrators of kidnapping, would be to speak to people who had used this tactic and ask them how it worked and why they used it. And once I had that idea in my head, I pretty much decided that the Middle East would not be a safe place for me to study that. Um, well, Columbia, yeah, in... Columbia, Columbia wasn't the <laughs> safest place either at the time, by the way. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't the safest, uh, right. don't tell my parents, but, um, <laughs> but it, was, um, it was certainly safer than trying to go to Syria yeah, yeah. Um, or trying to go to Yemen or, you know, we, there's, a, there's a method in social sciences called participant observation, where you mm -hmm. learn about the phenomenon by participating in it, maybe you study protest movements or, or things like that, or elections, and you you jump in the fray. I did not want to be a participant observation in a kidnapping. I wanted to just conduct interviews as safely as possible. And so I looked around the world and I, you know, tried to figure out where is there a, a robust and varied history of kidnapping that is a place that I logistically can go and ethically can go. And I, um, Columbia was, was a, became a, an early and obvious choice to me for a few reasons. Um, one on the logistical side, I had studied Spanish in elementary school through high school. Um, I hadn't used my Spanish in a very long time, but my Spanish was good enough that if I dedicated myself to lessons for a few months, that I knew I would be ready to travel to a Spanish speaking country and conduct uh, interviews in the language of my interview partners. Mm, and awesome. and so um, so I brushed up my Spanish. I, I abandoned the Arabic and, and picked up a language that, that comes much easier, I think. Um, the other is that, um, so you note 2017, so the timing. So in 2016, the Colombian government had signed a peace deal with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The Spanish acronym is FARC. And the FARC is a left-wing um, Marxist-Leninist guerrilla group. They had been fighting against the Colombian state for more than five decades. Yeah. It was the longest running insurgency in the Western Hemisphere. You know, when that, um, thing, when that thing started, I don't think either one of us were born. I think- No, uh, it's- I think they least, formed in the 60s. At least, at least I wasn't. I think it was 64. I was born in 70. So it's. I know you're much younger than me. So that 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 was going on for a long, long time when that peace agreement, for a very long when that time. when that peace process happened. You know, I was a little skeptical. Uh, I'm still. I'm, mm -hmm. you, you'll tell us a little bit more about it now. But the good news is that for those of folks who don't know about the conflict, a lot of people died. Several several hundred thousand people died. Um, mm -hmm. The disappearances were significant. It cost mm -hmm. a lot of money. For those of us from the, with economic backgrounds, by the way, when I went to law school, they crammed law and economics down our throats for a year. Some of it stuck, some of it didn't. 
but it, it did stick. <laughs> it did stick enough that you know there were a lot of opportunity costs, a lot of horrible, horrible economic and human loss for such a long time. So it was good that there was something in place in 2016. But but you sent me something before we when we were planning the what we we're going to talk about, and the headline was pretty shocking that the Colombian our commanders had accepted responsibility for kidnappings. And before we get to that, I just want to leave listeners that we'll give a, a link to folks so you can understand what Danny's talking about was a, a very long conflict. So it, it was longer than our civil war and uh, mm -hmm. the American civil war. And it was brutal. And for, just for such a small country, uh, having this transitional justice in place, a mechanism in place is uh, important. Um, I'm not sure how it will work, but you'll you'll tell us now uh, if it's something that's going to result in something positive. But w when you were there at that important time, um, what? How did it? Because you had you you had spent time with some of the bad actors, right? Before this was announced. Mm -hmm. So how was that uh, to be there during that time? Yeah, uh, fantastic question. So um, I'll just just put a few numbers on it. Um, for, for your listeners, since I, I think about these numbers all the time. So the, the conflict was ongoing since the 60s. It actually followed another civil war called La Violencia, La Violencia yeah. the violence. Yeah. So there was a mm -hmm. decade before that. Mm -hmm. um, but since, 19, uh, since the mid-1960s, when the FARC and another left-wing uh, rebel group called the ELN, the National Liberation Army, when those groups formed and then Decades later, there were right-wing paramilitaries that also formed and there were drug cartels. This was a multi-multi-actor conflict. Dozens of armed groups fighting each other, fighting the state. Um, so just to put some numbers on it, they estimate at least 220,000 people were killed, more than 7 million people displaced. So uh, removed from their homes and not able to return. And there are several different data sets that measure kidnapping in Colombia, and we can talk about this too, kidnapping is very, very hard to measure and um, often dramatically underreported, but at least 40,000 individual verified victims of kidnapping in Colombia. So that's wow. one out of every Colombia, one out of every 1,000 Colombian mm. citizens was kidnapped during the conflict. That is wow. very high. Um, so, high. so that's what the conflict looked like. And, and almost all of the kidnapping was perpetrated by these left-wing rebel groups. Um, the right-wing paramilitaries were much more likely to kill people, um, but the kidnapping happened almost exclusively on the political um, left. So uh, I had actually never been to Colombia before 2017. So I showed up there <laughs> for the first time um, right after they had signed this peace deal, the groups had been in, in negotiation for years. Um, and in some ways it was a, it was a really exciting time. And the past, the intervening years have been, mm. um, quite disappointing, um, in terms of the implementation of the peace accords and, and what has happened since. So one of the things that happened as part of the peace deal is that the FARC officially demobilized. They put down their weapons. They were put into essentially demobilization camps. There were special land that was designated for uh, members of the group that were still active to go and essentially to live and to fill out citizenship paperwork and to 
start getting different things from the government and to figure out how they were going to live normal lives. At the same time, the existing members of the FARC started a political party that they launched um, because many of them wanted to join mainstream politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is ki- that's what was happening in, in 2017 when I first arrived and I had the opportunity to conduct some interviews at one of those demobilization camps. And so the expectation of the people who would be in a camp like that is that they were really true believers. They stuck with the group all the way to the end. Mm. Whereas there were thousands and thousands of Colombians who had demobilized individually. They had left the group much earlier as a result of the counterinsurgency by the government, the increased military presence, um, essentially over the last 20 years, and um, different opportunities. And there are many reasons to leave a rebel group. But a lot of the other ex-combatants that I was able to speak to were people who had left the group on their own many years prior. Wow. Let me ask something about your the, the, the transition in for you as far as the beginning of your field work. I'm just curious, as someone who sure. learns as someone who learns Spanish outside of um, you know, outside of a Spanish speaking country, how'd you find your 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 I mean I'm, you speak Spanish very well. How was that at the very beginning when you were starting to use your Spanish in the field with folks like this? Um, let's see, a, a few things I can think of. So I committed to myself from the moment that I arrived in Colombia that I would always use my Spanish. Um, I actually have no idea. Full how... immersion. So you went in full immersion. Full it immersion. Like, it's, that's it. I Just went, do I it. full immersion. That's pretty remarkable. I, that's just a, I, I mean, think... I... I grew up speaking Spanish, and let me tell you, from the way you jumped around from languages, from Arabic to Spanish, uh, that's it's not easy. So just jumping in there and doing field work, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. So thank you. Uh, kudos, I appreciate kudos, it. Kudos to you, my friend. And then hanging out with these <laughs> folks and ho- hanging out with these folks, which probably it wasn't easy. Uh, but I want I want to talk some more about Colombia in a minute, but uh, sure. I'm, I'm, I want to tie in briefly this issue of, of um, well, let's just think with Colombia for now. It, it, if you were to summarize why they use kidnapping because i think uh, it'd be helpful to talk about when we talk about a u.s hostage policy um you said something curious about there wasn't much in the academic literature about Mm. this this issue and you'd be surprised on the legal side there's not much frankly uh on the legal side and u.s hostage policy has been updated a bit lately uh but the law frankly uh, i don't think has caught up u.s law hasn't caught up to, to what I think we need. Uh, we can talk about that later, but it's important to people to understand why different groups do this sort of thing. And I grew up, I mean, I'm born in 70, so I remember a little bit, although now I studied it plenty, the 1979 hostage crisis in Iran. Sure. Uh, that was a powerful um, campaign that gripped the nation, right? It, uh, it was a tie yellow ribbon, remember, around the old oak tree, all, all mm-hmm. those, it was like a national rallying for the hostages. Um, but before we get to that, why did the FARC use this as a, as a tool? Because I believe they used it as a tool. Oh, absolutely. Um, so at the, the heart of all hostage-taking violence, regardless of the perpetrator, is leverage. So that, that might be very obvious to, to you and your listeners, but a human life is an extremely high value of leverage for the person holding someone captive. 
Um, something that I hear a lot um, in conversations about hostage taking and unlawful detentions and kidnapping is the question about, oh, well, the perpetrators must not value human life if they're willing to hold someone like that. And I actually think it's the contrary. I think the perpetrators know exactly how much a human life is worth, I which is why yeah. just holding one person is so powerful to them. So, so that's at the heart of, of all of it. And whether that's the embassy sieges of the 1970s and 80s and the airplane hijackings that were such a big thing from the 60s and 70s until the airlines started putting in security, frankly, yeah. uh, to the kidnappings that really took off in the 1980s. So um, regardless of, of what form of hostage taking the perpetrators are using, what they're demanding, they recognize how powerful it is to hold a human life in their hands. Can, can you, can you share, the, oh. can, before you jump to the Colombia and the case about Colombia specifically, sure. is, uh, I think, because you've written about this, uh, hostage taking is a centuries old practice. So, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not, it's not really the practice. Um, what, what we see today as hostage taking is not what it used to be. Uh, where do you think it made that break that it became a tool, not just for the FARC, but other groups? And how was the FARC style of hostage taking so different from the others that you studied? That's a great question. So I think one of the features that has changed hostage taking the most over time is innovations in technology. Hmm. So um, I, I wrote a piece about this in War on the Rocks a few years ago that I, I can send you the link for the show page if you'd like, um, that essentially there have been a few major technological innovations that have been very beneficial to hostage takers and have fueled the use of hostage taking as a tool. So one of them is commercial air flight, frankly. Um, so after individuals started hijacking airplanes, often to escape the Soviet bloc or mm. to escape um, a few individual uh, people in the US used it to hijack a flight to get a free pass to Cuba, um, criminals who were essentially trying to escape the arm of the law. Um, it became very clear to different rebel groups in the 1970s that this would be a very valuable tool to them. Uh, that it would draw an immense amount of attention and that when you are holding all of these people in an airplane hostage that you essentially can demand whatever you want. Um, an airplane is a very interesting place to hold people hostage because the passengers in a way for the most part will will hold themselves accountable because to escape is certain death. Um, and so you don't see people trying to escape an airplane that has been hijacked. Um, for the most part, and so you have very well behaved hostages in a way. You know, you, you, um, you know. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you just I have to say okay. I, I, have, I forgot you brought something to mind, and I'm going to forget. You just brought to mind Operation Entebbe. <laughs> the uh, mm -hmm. the uh, precisely when the when the um, when the you know, counter terrorist hostage rescue mission that the Israeli Defense Forces carried out. I think it was in, in the late '70s. I think you don't see a lot of that, frankly, um, in I mean, no. you, don't, you don't see many planes getting taken hostage lately, but uh, it's an interesting dynamic. But anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Go, keep going. And, not uh, not at all. You, you don't see a lot of that anymore, essentially, because there used to not be any airline security. You could walk right onto a plane. Your bags didn't get checked. You didn't go through a metal detector. Mm -hmm. um, and 
when the hijacking started in the 1960s and 1970s, the airlines fought against implementing security measures That's because right. they thought most passengers <laughs> wouldn't like it, right? They thought passengers wouldn't like it. And so um, eventually when this became such a problem, the airlines widened up and they started implementing security. And that is why you don't see much airplane hijacking mm. anymore. Sure. The other... The other very big change um, that I see, well, the, there's kind of a, a, an interim change, which is the introduction of 24-7 cable news and crisis coverage. Mm -hmm. So actually, the, the hostage taking of the U.S. Embassy in Iran in 1979 was the very beginning of round-the-clock crisis news coverage. Mm -hmm. And so um, perpetrators, again, knew they could hold worldwide attention for a very long time, um, making this choice to stay in place with the hostages. And you have to make, as a perpetrator, as a hostage taker, a, a pretty calculated decision when you're doing that. You're putting yourself at risk. You are, you are somewhere that the media, that law enforcement, they know where you are. And your job is to negotiate your way out, essentially, or die trying. You can get lots and lots and lots of attention for your cause, um, but you are not in a safe place, essentially. Mm -hmm. The big change, um, as I argue in this piece on War on the Rocks, came with the invention of technology like the iPhone and YouTube. When kidnappers could, um, at a very large scale, take hostages and bring them to new clandestine, undisclosed locations. They could be in their safe hideaways across borders, in the jungle, in a cave, what have you. And they could still project these brutal videos. They could capture worldwide attention for their cause without being in a place that the media and law enforcement know where they are. And so I think that that kind of technology has eliminated that choice between security and publicity for the perpetrators and ha as such has made things more dangerous. It has made it much more possible for perpetrators to be able to attract attention while remaining out of the public eye. And why do you think today, and we're gonna skip over a lot, but that's okay. We can jump back and forth, <laughs> sure. we can jump back and forth. Why do you think today is such a challenge, for example, and this came up yesterday uh, up on Capitol Hill when uh, Congressman Deutsch, the chairman of the Middle East Subcommittee of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Congressman Hill were making their remarks about the creation of the Congressional Hostage Caucus. And, well, I remember Deutsch said specifically, help bring attention. Why is it so hard? And, and he acknowledges this. Why is it so challenging today? Is it because there's all these new forms of information dissemination that we have out there, the internet, the private channels, the Twitter, the this, the that, versus back in 79, you know, I remember this was a big deal for Nightline and Ted Koppel, and, and I've seen a lot of those old, old programs, and it was constant. Every night, you, the American people, there was no internet back then. They had that one window onto the hostage crisis, and you knew that if you watched Ted Koppel that night on Nightline, you would get the ticker, and you'd get an update mm -hmm. about what was happening. It was a very political event also, which we're not going to talk about today here in the States, but it, today, on the other hand, I can't tell you, Danny, how hard it is. It's very, very difficult sometimes to bring attention to the fact that there are Americans 
unlawfully imprisoned or held hostage, mm -hmm. not only by state actors, but non-state actors like, like the FARC. Uh, there's a good example recently of an American in Afghanistan who is apparently being held by the Haqqani network and mm -hmm. uh, fo folks are worried they're going to leave him behind. Why is that? Why is it so tough to get the, the media on all sides? I mean, it doesn't matter which, which network we're talking about. I know a lot of journalists that love to cover this. And you can't, I can't tell you how many times they'll tell me, Jason, my editors, uh, it got knocked off for some silly, what I consider silly social network thing. I mean, it, do you think it's just that there's a lot more of it? Does the data hold that? Or do you think it's right now, it's just there's so much, so many ways Americans can get access to information that dilutes okay. the, as an issue, yes. Yeah, that's a really tough question. I I don't have an immediate answer to that. I think that the proliferation of all different kinds of media sources and the fact that we are so divided in terms of the media that we are consuming, it's probably a big part of it. It's no longer the nightly news that everybody watches and, and we're all kind of hearing the same story at the same time. Mm -hmm. That certainly contributes to it. Um, there is a dynamic that I have studied a uh, with a co-author of mine, uh, Professor Lauren Prather, who's at UCSD, about what makes Americans um, essentially pay more attention or be more sympathetic to cases of Americans held hostage abroad. So we've, we've looked at what makes Americans more or less likely to support costly rescue missions to bring home Americans who are captured abroad. And one of the things that we find in our research is that it is that one of the main factors that drives whether or not Americans support rescue missions is whether the, um, the survey respondent believes that the person held hostage is worthy, is deserving of a rescue mission, if they're deserving of support. And that part of the input that goes into that is whether or not we feel that the person is responsible for being in danger. So wow. did that person voluntarily go to a dangerous place? Were they somewhere they didn't, they weren't supposed to be? Or were they in danger because they had to be there for work, because they were um, on a risky assignment, because they were doing something that we that we value and that we deem as important? So an implication of that, and and you know, at the baseline, what we find in our in our survey is that most Americans are highly supportive of bringing home Americans held mm. abroad. When asked, you know, should we rescue this person, people for the most part say yes. So so that's the good news. Um, but when details come out about a story that people find unsympathetic, or that the person was somehow responsible for their circumstances, they're less likely to support a rescue mission. And so this might play into notions of American responsibility and individualism, um, that maybe our society doesn't sort of have that feeling of collective sacrifice of wherever there's an American, we should do whatever it takes to bring them home. Mm. Um, but essentially judging people based on 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 why they got into circumstances in the first place. And, and that actually comes from political science arguments about uh, welfare and social safety nets and, and who people think the government should support, that the same kind of dynamics apply to these international cases. And so implications of that are the cases when it seems like the person is essentially a more sympathetic 
victim, whatever that means, you know, whether that means whether it's related to their profession or their gender or what they were doing in the place when they were captured, that that might affect the ability to get media attention. And so, you know, you'll sometimes hear people say when someone was kidnapped, when they were hiking in a dangerous place, people will say, well, what were they doing hiking there? You know, um, and the position of the US government is very clear that it does not matter why someone was taken. They're an American when they're held captive. It's important to us to bring them home, regardless of how they got captured. Um, okay. But the Let's ability go. to gain attention for a case is different. Let's go to that issue. And by the way, I agree with sure. all that. I, I, everything you just said, I, I, I haven't seen data, but I can tell you anecdotally, even in some of the cases that we've worked on and others, and a lot of them that we don't publish, of course, uh, a lot of times people will tell you, even policymakers, which I find a little uh, bizarre, especially from a policymaker, a federal policymaker, uh, mm -hmm. why did they go there to begin with? didn't they know it was a dangerous place? Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things we counsel people and the Foley Foundation is very good about this and, and, and they, they're educating, you know, part of their mission is to educate on this and so is the Hostages US and some other entities. And we may do a program one day just on this issue where we and advise folks. And in my private practice, we used to tell our clients and still do if they ask us these sort of questions, if you're gonna go to a place like Iran or Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, uh, China, even potentially Russia, mm -hmm. you need to take precautions before you go. You read, re, you mm -hmm. read travel warnings. Uh, the state department has recently updated how they're doing this a few years ago. They're a little better now. Um, but you know, don't rely on the Rick Steves manual for travel because you'll never see an insert in any of these places about kidnapping. And by the way, the travel industry, I think needs to do a better job of, of and something they don't like to do. Uh, here in Washington, there's a resistance to it because why do you want to be announcing it's dangerous to go somewhere? And I say the opposite. Look, statistically, the odds of you being kidnapped anywhere in the world are statistically insignificant. It probably will not happen. Uh, but you need to take precautions. You need to read the warnings, sure. take out the proper insurance. Um, it can cost you a little more if you go to a place with higher risk for kidnapping, but everybody should do that. And by the way, I always tell people, don't expect Uncle Sam to come pick you up because the odds of that happening are also uh, close to nil and i think it depends on the circumstances now the policy is changing and this is this is where i was coming where i was coming back to something you just said there sure. about us the role of the us government in this what should it be and the us government has you know grappled with this for decades i would say centuries although if you really go back in the history and you look at the hostage act debate back in the late 8, 19th century um, which was a totally different type of conflict and you, you look at the statutes and the president has this a lot of power short of declaring war to go after and rescue Americans. At least that's how I read the law. Uh, but there's, there are these gaps, right? And there's a debate right now in the government that started with some of the beheading cases that you talked about, mm -hmm. um, uh, where several Americans were beheaded by ISIS and it's happening with other groups where the policy during the Obama administration started to change a bit. And now we have this law called the Levinson Law, the Levinson Act, um, and slowly carving out a role for the U.S. government. I mean, should there be one? I'm curious as to what you think about all of this, because you studied this in depth. And what should that role be? Because ultimately, you're, you're right. Most Americans, I think, would say, look, we're a free country. We're free to go wherever we want in the world. 
but you have to take mm -hmm. responsibility before you go and mitigate the risk as much as you can. Now, I think the U.S. government, once an American is taken hostage by a state or non-state actor or unlawfully imprisoned, mm -hmm. and this is a little, little sensitive topic that we'll, I want to ask you about after you answer this question, what should happen when you're unlawfully imprisoned in a country that has a weak legal regime or a regime that you, you, you know that hasn't been due process? In your studying, though, big picture, what should the role of the federal government be, do you think, in these type of cases, state or non-state? It's an excellent question, and I have I have so much to say, so I'll, I'll try so to fire be away, brief. fire um, away. No, no, yeah. take your time. Um, Go ahead. Great. So um, uh, to my in my analysis, uh, it, it appears to me that the U.S. Uh, policy on hostage taking has had three major changes, all the result of an unfortunate outcome of a terrible hostage event. And so the US government you know, looks around, takes stock and says, okay, that was terrible. What can we do better next time? So the first happened after the hostage taking at the US embassy in Tehran in 1979, um, a very botched rescue attempt um, that essentially became the genesis of the beginning of US special forces, that it totally changed how the US organizes its special forces with the specific mission of being responsible for hostage rescue. And so all of the rescues that we, we see abroad, and as you note very correctly, Jason, there are not that many of them. Um, they are extremely challenging to do. They are expensive. There are only a few situations in which the US can even legally and logistically do them. Um, but we see them from the Navy SEALs, and we see them from uh, Army, from Delta Force, um, depending on where they are in the world. So that came after the uh, Iranian embassy crisis of 1979. The next time that U.S. hostage policy changed in a significant way happened in 2002, after the kidnapping and the, again, brutal beheading on video of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. Um, and so until 2002, the U.S. government's policy about hostage rescue had been that it was only the government's responsibility to essentially get involved in hostage cases and to, that it had to work to rescue Americans when the American was an employee of the federal government, when they were military or a diplomat. And so after 2002, when this happened to Daniel Pearl, um, the Bush administration looked around at itself and said, okay, we need to find a way to include civilians and non-combatants in this. We need to be able to do something for American civilians who were kidnapped abroad. And then the last major change, uh, precisely as you mentioned, was after the Islamic State kidnappings and beheadings in 2013 and deaths in 2014 that uh, the Obama administration looked around and said, well, this was obviously a failure on many counts. Maybe uh, we didn't communicate across agencies properly. We didn't respond fast enough. We weren't communicating with families. There were things said to families of hostages in this moment of crisis that no one would ever want the government to say to families of hostages, like, um, don't try to pay the ransom, we will prosecute you, which though current US law, um, is a very hard thing to hear when you're going through this kind of um, just unbelievable tragedy. 
And so what happened after 2013 is the US government did um, an examination of its interagency process and President Obama released what is known as PPD, Presidential Policy Directive 30, and an executive order essentially laying out a few institutions within the US government that would focus explicitly on dealing with the capture and recovery of Americans kidnapped abroad. So how are the agencies gonna to talk to each other? How do we bring Americans home? How senior levels of government are going to deal with these issues? And how will information be shared with families in a sensitive, timely, and appropriate way? And so what happened from PPD 30 was the development of, of several different government uh, organizations, as I mentioned. One is the Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, which is the interagency day-to-day -day operations following these hostage cases working to bring Americans home. And there are representatives from kind of every national right. security agency you can imagine in, in the, the Fusion Cell. There's the Hostage Response Group, um, which is senior level uh, players from the hostage recovery fusion cell, from the National Security Council, who are kind of making the top line decisions on what should we do about these individual cases. And there was the creation of an office at the State Department, which I, I know you've mentioned and talked about on your show in the past, um, the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, or the SPIHA. Um, and this, the SPIHA um, is is dual-headed in an interesting way that I think actually paved the way for the Levinson Act that I'll talk about in a second. The SPIHA is responsible both for bringing diplomatic attention to the cases that the hostage recovery fusion cell are working on, which are very explicitly when Americans are captured by non-state actors abroad. So they're kidnapped by criminals, they're kidnapped by rebels, terrorists, not the governments of those states. Um, the SPIHA can help diplomatically with those. And the SPIHA has a different role, which is not a part of any of the rest of this constellation of hostage recovery infrastructure, which is to deal with cases of Americans unlawfully or unjustly detained abroad in um, essentially what I would call hostage diplomacy, which is holding someone under the color and guise of law, so arresting them through normal state procedures, but the intention is to use them as leverage, just as a kidnapper, a non-state actor kidnapper would when they're holding someone um, kidnapped. So the SPIHA kind of has these, these dual-headed roles. Now, I think ask, one of the problems, but, but, oh yeah, please. Before you, before you continue, let me ask you, and you can answer this at the end, but one of the questions I have for you on the SPIHA is should he or she be at state or should he or she be at the NSC or be able to access those two places at the highest levels, including mm -hmm. some other places with heightened importance given his or his role in this process? And you, you can answer that later as part of your commentary because it's something that of all the things in the Levinson Law, that's the one mm. section that I've always questioned whether it should be structured the way it's structured right now, but keep, 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 jump on in. Sure. Um, I think you're exactly right to point this out that the SPIHA is limited in some very important ways um, that it is a, a high ranking position, it's ambassador rank, it's Senate confirmed, um, but still it's really hard to make 
someone from a different agency do what you want them to do if where they're coming from is the State Department and someone is coming from you know, maybe the FBI or, or um, DOD or something like that. And so I think one of the challenges of this is figuring out, um, I do think it's important to have someone at the State Department to be responsible for bringing up these issues in diplomatic conversations. So mm-hmm. yep. when the U.S. is having talks on whatever else, and I know you've talked about this before on, on the show, that you're talking about some other diplomatic issue. What is the appropriate way, when and how do we bring up the Americans who are held captive in that country as part of the negotiation process? It's great to have someone whose sole job is figuring that out or their main job is figuring that out and being responsible for that. Um, should there also be someone at the NSC who is you know, responsible for this at a, at a more senior level? I think that's a really, that's a really tough question. Um, you know, maybe that is tasking someone who has other kinds of international and national security roles, you know, kind of prioritize kidnapping and hostage taking in their portfolio. Great. I think one of the things that really comes up here is the tension between how we bring hostages home and everything else that the U.S. cares about. And I think, mm. you know, this is back to the question of leverage is that our enemies and our opponents and our near peer rivals, whatever you want to call them, they know that holding an American is going to throw a wrench in everything else that we're asking for. And so it really pits important priorities against one another. I think that that makes a strong case for why there should be someone whose individual job it is to care about these things, because then they they can make the case all day long and they don't have to worry internally about compromising themselves. You know, it's about making the case to the president or to the national security advisor or something like that. Um, you know, so, yeah, please. It, it, it triggers something that I wanted to ask you about this because this, I think, will bleed into what you were going to say uh, about the profiling, uh, the profile status of this office and how the holder, the SPIHA, makes, you know, a lot of it's driven by the personality of the person and how they've carved out the mission for the office from their duties that they have there to carry out. It's a lot of work, frankly, and I don't think they have enough resources to do what needs to be done. But, you know, one thing is, you know, how do you decide to inject this into the diplomatic space? Do you, because I think this person needs to be able to either, if it's not directly, like, for example, when you brief the president, he or she should know, the status every day of whether there's an American unlawfully in prison and what's been done to deal with it. I know that there's a very elaborate process about how that gets decided, but you have to prioritize it within the mm-hmm. policy structure because ultimately when diplomats are off around the world doing their jobs, if this is not reinforced as a priority issue, they're not going to raise it. Uh, so deploying the SPIHA, he, he or she can't be there at every single place where there's an American held hostage at any given time. So there has to be a whole approach, I think, in elevating this so that everybody from the president on down to the ambassador sitting in a country where there is a hostage or an unlawfully imprisoned person, uh, that consular affairs or whoever does this, makes sure that this becomes a priority. And you need somebody with a personality that can, I guess, whip or I mean, borrow a house term, uh, house representatives term to whip mm-hmm. to whip the diplomatic corps. And make sure it's a priority, you know, when Robert O'Brien, I forget where he went, he did a trip that uh, kind of shocked some folks where he, I think, went to do some hostage diplomacy in, in Europe. 
in the, in the Rocky. ASAP Rocky, that's right. Uh, and yeah. that's that's you know a lot of families that I worked with were really upset by this, wondering well why did why yeah. did why did the speha go to some European country that has due process of law and has a right. system in place and elevate the case the way they did, but doesn't go to Iran, doesn't go to Cuba, doesn't go to places where these horrible things are happening. Of course, it's, we need another show to talk about that. But where do you think the you know, the, the, where's the pivot here? How what things need to mm. happen, I guess, because the Levinson law, frankly, is just a codification of the PPD 30 mm-hmm. uh, with one mm-hmm. or two exceptions. There's a nice little section there on sanctions. Uh, you know, some accountability is in there. But what do you think has to happen, I think, in this next phase? So we don't wait for another tragic experience and Americans are targeted again and our government reacts. Mm-hmm. Because, by the way, you said something that as a conservative uh, gave me a little goosebump here about this constellation of entities that I, I've always <laughs> I, I I don't like to create things. Right. So to me, if you have to create, uh-huh. if you have to create more government, I'm already suspicious. Uh, and uh-huh. and do, do we need more people? Do we need more bodies? Do we need more agencies? There's a lot of dedicated people in our government, FBI, you name it, mm-hmm. that want to do this sort of thing. It, do you think we need more government? What is the role? But ultimately, what do you think has to happen next? so that we don't have another tragedy and there's no phase four in our lifetime about an American being beheaded or something horrible happening to someone just because they're holding a blue passport or a black passport. Sure, I, I hear you. Um, I, I would say my, my impression about the hostage recovery fusion cell while a new entity is that it's drawing people who were already working on these topics um, in their kind of bureau or agency silos and it's it's putting them in the same room to make them talk to one another so hopefully it's not duplicative it's not more it's just it's more efficient it's bringing people together so that's my impression and I you know I I hope that that that's how it's working out I think um and I will agree with you I think it was ludicrous for the SPIHA to get involved in the ASAP Rocky case that is not what the position is for um and you know really none of us should should take that seriously and instead should hope that our SPIHA is is working on the cases that are intractable and and more frightening than that. Mm. Um, I think that uh, so the the Levinson Act and which I will disclose I um, consulted with uh, Senator Menendez's office in putting together the bill um, so you know so I'm coming from that perspective right. um, that it does a couple of things and I think most importantly what it does is it gets members of Congress engaged and involved in this topic in kind of an organized fashion um, and just like the the new hostage task force um, that Congressman uh, Hill and Deutsch launched yesterday um, that that is, uh, you know, another important way for members of Congress to, to take a leadership role in this. And part of that is that members of Congress are going to be as concerned as possible about their own constituents, constituents and about right. the cases yeah. that they care about. Exactly. Yeah. And so you it's know, much and, easier to get an advocate. I'm glad you said this because, frankly, Congress at times was MIA on hostage policy. It's not just the executive branch. I mean, we started this podcast talking about authorizers and appropriators and uh, and the mm-hmm. bipartisan nature of hostage policy, I mean, of, of foreign ops and what have you. And, and this is an area where there should be a lot of uh, congressional participation. In fact, anywhere there's an American unlawfully imprisoned or held hostage, they have a representative, they have two senators. I think right. those they must be engaged. And a lot of times members don't know how to deal with these issues. And it's great that mm-hmm. you have champions like Menendez, 
Mendez is a true champion on this issue, uh, Congressman Deutsch. Uh, there's, there's several others on both sides of the aisle that are working hard to bring this process together because without congressional involvement, uh, you and I both know also that it's also a pretty good check on the executive as well, right? At times mm-hmm. when these yeah. things- I, I think it's the most important thing that I think it's why they launched the task force, frankly, is to, you know, to hold the administration's feet to the fire, to keep attention on these cases. The the Levinson Act did a couple of things other than codifying PPD 30 into law, yes. which frankly, I think is a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have yeah. it on the books. Yeah. Um, the other things it did that I think are important, first, it defined what kinds of cases of Americans imprisoned abroad by state actors, when those cases should be transferred from the Bureau of Consular Affairs to the SPIHA's office per um, you know, the, the approval of the Secretary of State. Essentially what that says is that there are uh, maybe 10 different categories of unlawful or unjust imprisonment abroad that that case will be removed from someone who's dealing with kind of day-to-day what's happening to Americans abroad, basic um, justice or legal cases to this is a case that requires the attention of the Secretary of State, of the President of the United States, that this is a diplomatic issue. Um, And so defining when those cases should be transferred, I think hopefully should make a really big difference for the families of these particular cases. So that's one thing that it that it did that I think is is quite meaningful. Um, the other is that it requires annual reporting to Congress mm. on all of these cases. So um, you know that was something that that I personally was very excited about as someone who studies these cases. That there's absolutely no data. There's no way for me to find out how many Americans are imprisoned abroad. All of the research that I've done about Americans imprisoned abroad relies on public reportings of these stories, which is only the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And so having this public reporting to Congress, even if it's not something that a researcher like me can access, it means that the members of Congress will know when their constituents are being held abroad by state or non-state actors. And so I think that that's going to be a really meaningful way to keep the members of Congress involved in this issue. And we're talking with Dr. I have to say your name a few times, not my my team will say I didn't. So I'm going to say it multiple times. Now, Dr. Danny Gilbert, <laughs> we're talking to Dr. Danny Gilbert about hostage policy and transitional justice issues. Danny, as we start to get to the tail end of the show, um, you know, I could keep going. So we want to have you back because I think that there's a lot we just started to scratch the surface on. But on, on and you're right, on the Levinson Law, uh, it's going to be, a, I think, a powerful tool to not only galvanize members, uh, publish data, but also empower uh, the SPIHA and the team because this is all internal beltway stuff. But anytime you create an entity like this within a bureaucracy, it doesn't matter which state, treasury, doesn't really matter. It's gonna be, there's gonna be some time. And if there's no clear guidelines about what power flows from where, what equities flow to who, it becomes difficult to build the mission. And I think the Levinson Law helps carve this and move it in the right direction. And I hope we can continue updating it because it is a tool that was needed. We didn't have it mm-hmm. a few years ago when some of us started to be a little more active in this space and we're turning to the government because a lot of times, folks, um, uh, those listening who've maybe never heard about cases like these, the government used to, used to tell you, and they still do, stay quiet, don't say anything, uh, mm-hmm. don't go public. In some cases, maybe it's warranted. Uh, you have to take each case 
case by case and see what the facts tell you. But usually, in, especially in the case of state actors, you need to be very proactive. You need to lean in. I'm a creature of the Cold War. I'm a Cold War baby. And I grew up and I listened to members of Congress talk about prisoners of conscience behind the Iron Curtain. And I saw the power uh, that the Congress could have when they would bear witness to these cases, talk about them. It does afford them protection and it can help move these along. That's not always the case, uh, but it's good to have uh, folks like Danny writing about this, talking about it, the media reporting on the cases. It does help save lives. I believe that in some cases it's important to be public. And I think the Levinson Law will help us do that. It also gives us, this is kind of one of the the last few questions I can ask you in the time frame I've been given, so I apologize for that. But um, what do you think about the whole justice process? So you get people out, we bring them home safely, we hope. How important is it? And maybe you maybe saw some of this in Colombia, uh, that they're struggling with it now in a transitional justice setting. But in a situation like here in the States, how important is accountability uh, mm. to help long-term policy as a deterrence? Should it be something that we do more of? Like sanctions are part of it. We can have another chat about sanctions. I'm not sure that they necessarily always help during a hostage crisis. They can, uh, they can help. But um, how important is it though to hold the, the, the people who did this to account in a court of law where possible? Or frankly, when you're, you know, you can hold people to account in other ways, especially when they're a non-state actor holding a hostage somewhere. But how important is that element of it as a long-term deterrent? That's an excellent question. So um, what that makes me think of immediately are terms that we use in political science and security studies about deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment. Hmm. So essentially, what is the process that we're going to use to keep our enemies and opponents from doing something we don't want them to do? And for a very long time, the approach to hostage taking has been deterrence by denial. In other words, what can we do to make sure that the hostage takers cannot enjoy the fruits of their labor by taking someone hostage? So that's things like outlawing ransom payments, um, hand-tying families when they report to law enforcement. Um, in several countries around the world, if you report a hostage-taking case, they freeze your assets, they freeze your bank account so that right. you can't pay a ransom with the idea that if we're denying the hostage takers the money or, or whatever else that they seek, that maybe they'll stop doing that. And maybe you've heard that come up in conversations in the past few weeks about all of these ransomware attacks. People are talking about, oh, should we make paying ransomware? Um, should we make paying the hackers a ransom? Should we make that illegal? Um, and that would be deterrence by denial. The flip side of that is deterrence by punishment. So how can we threaten you with a punishment if you do the thing we don't want you to do or actually punish people after the fact and deter future cases? And so big part of that is punishing hostage takers, whether that's holding them to account in American courts. Um, that can often be a bit unsatisfying because we live in an international system and U.S. law does not apply to uh, it, we can't enforce it outside of our borders in certain ways. And so it's important to do it. It's important to demonstrate that this is something that we care about, we will follow up on, even if it's not going to ultimately be satisfying and enforce the punishment in the way we might like. Um, and it's another part of hostage recovery missions. Mm. 
that not only is it demonstrating we're not going to give in and pay the ransom or or make the concessions you want, but if you capture an American, someone is going to come after you and it's going to hurt quite a bit. Um, and so that uh, rescue missions kind of combine that deterrence by punishment with the idea of trying to find a way to bring Americans home. And the Colombian case, to, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, um, as part of the peace deal, they have put in place a, a, a robust transitional justice process. They have what they call the Jurisdiccion Especial para la Paz, that's mm -hmm. um, special jurisdiction for peace, um, or they call it HEP, J-E-P. Um, and the HEP took up as its first and most high profile case in this entire transitional justice process, the question of kidnapping by the FARC. It is the first and most important thing that they took up and has been uh, by all accounts, wildly successful. They um, have gotten apologies and admissions of guilt from FARC senior leadership. The FARC senior leadership has admitted that what they were doing was kidnapping. They mm. use the word in Spanish, sequestro, which sequestro, means kidnapping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, instead, for decades, they called it retención, mm -hmm. um, retenciones económicas, the economic retention, um, which you know they claimed was not kidnapping. Um, but they have formally accepted that what they were doing was kidnapping. They've apologized for it. Um, they have admitted that it was a central part of their organization's strategy. Um, it does not absolve them of guilt by any means. They will still go through a legal process, um, but it, it gets us on the path to healing. Um, and to, to hear that admission is, is something that, you know, no one would have expected no, decades no, ago. I, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I didn't. I didn't expect it. And that's kind of something that's going to be studied for a while. And we're studying it closely here. Uh, our organization looks at it closely because we have um, uh, work that we do with human rights defenders in the hemisphere. And one of the places that we're frequently asked about conflict, de-escalation and resolution and transitional justice is Cuba uh, mm -hmm. that has been struggling for almost more than 60 years now. And it's very, very divided. In fact, if you go into the different groups, uh, whether folks on the island, which is a different phenomenon from the folks in the diaspora, uh, there's a, a lot of debate about it. Will it be a truth and reconciliation? Will it be tribunals? Will it be, you know, what will it be? There's, so the parties seem to agree, at least anecdotally based on what I've read and spoken to folks about that. Well, there needs to be something, right? So there was this period of a mm -hmm. intense persecution pre-59 and post-59. There's ongoing persecution on the island right now that's usually documented domestically in Cuba. Uh, but also mostly at the OAS at the Commission, Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. But what comes after that? And a lot of folks look at different models and Colombia's frankly been interesting how they're doing it. I frankly didn't think it was gonna work. Uh, I, I still am a little skeptical, but uh, there has been a lot of progress and they're making moves and that's good. Uh, it's better than fighting, mm -hmm. it's, better, it's better than war uh, and the Colombian people are tired of it. And in Cuba, they're tired of it. Uh, they they, they don't mm -hmm. want, people are scared, reporters are scared, journalists are scared, professors. I've had professors contact me in University of Havana that they're tired of it. Uh, what advice do you give to, and, and that's a very unfair question, uh, but it's a broad, <laughs> you know, you studied this a lot, but when when, when you see a place like, a Cuba that's still in conflict that may be coming out of a conflict someday soon. Uh, what do you think 
are some lessons that you can extrapolate from their field work that you did in Colombia in 2017 mm. and today and other other scenarios that you've studied that you think would be helpful to places in conflict that maybe are looking for a guide out of it? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I will say it's not my area of expertise, but but I have read you know as much as I can about transitional justice processes. And, and what we see time and time again coming out of conflicts everywhere in the world is that accountability, truth, and reconciliation are, are crucial. Um, and not only are they crucial, it's crucial to implement them in a way that helps protect both past victims and past perpetrators from retribution after sharing their truths. Right, um, so right. it's not just about airing you know, what happened. Um, sometimes airing what happened can actually increase the violence because then um, you know, there's, there's a desire for revenge, um, but it, it needs a comprehensive process that both allows people to confront what they've been through, um, to invest in, in their future and, and to protect people um, against that kind of sense of retribution going forward. Yeah, that's a great exhibit uh, for folks that are interested in this topic. And, and Danny's right. Those are the three pillars, accountability, truth, and reconciliation. And over at the Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C., uh, there's a lot of uh, information, especially the one on Cambodia, uh, that stands out. It's quite interesting, uh, some of the ways they've grappled with it there. Uh, and it's something that I think we'll have to grapple pretty soon in the hemisphere in a few places, I think Cuba will be the first. Nicaragua, frankly, it's a lesson for a lot of us in how they didn't really have in Nicaragua after the Civil War any a good substantive uh, transitional justice program. And they're struggling because of it, frankly, right now. And hopefully what they're doing in mm -hmm. Colombia works. I, I Again, the reason I'm a little biased is because anything Cuba's involved with, I'm immediately skeptical of. Uh, sure. And, and uh, it's makes you know they were very involved in in bringing the uh, the FARC to the table, uh, but mm -hmm. that'll be studied and that'll be hopefully uh, they'll succeed. I know there's a lot of criticism by folks on the other side who don't think this goes far enough. But hey, at least if the country can uh, focus on the mission of accountability, truth, and reconciliation, they can avoid another conflict where they they frankly can't. They should not have to engage in another one. It'd be horrible for the people of Colombia to deal with that. And for the U.S., the instability there is not good uh, for any, any of us in the region. Uh, they, uh, um, before we close up, Danny, there's folks that, young folks who want to get more involved in this. What, you know, we ask everyone who comes on the podcast uh, who, who have an interest in human rights work and whether it's in your lane or any lane that uh, has brought you to this, what advice would you give them uh, if they want to be more involved, uh, if they want to go work in Congress, for example, or State Department, like, what things do you think they should be doing if they're making career choices? That's a great question. Um, it's There are so many opportunities to get involved in these issues that, that you care about. Um, you know, initially, I, I want to say, go volunteer, find an issue that you care about and, and join a campaign, though it's also, I think, very important that young people get compensated for their time and their labor. So um, what I want you all to do is find a paid internship um, right. or an opportunity <laughs> to work for an organization uh, that, that focuses on these issues. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a trade-off when you're just starting out in your career and you're looking for opportunities between, you um, 
if you take a, a kind of a more prestigious role, sometimes the work won't be as substantive um, and vice versa. Sometimes if you work for a smaller, less known organization, you can really get your hands dirty and, and take on a lot of responsibility. So I say, mix it up, try, try a little bit of both. And wherever you go, whatever opportunity you find, find one person in the organization who, whose work is really fascinating to you, whose career is fascinating to you and attach yourself to that person, help them out, um, you know, get on their projects and, and start putting things together for them, read what they're reading. Um, and, you know, that'll be a great way for you to learn a lot about how to make a career in the things that are important to you. Dr. Danielle Gilbert, Danny, that was excellent advice. As always, I, by the way, I learned a lot uh, listening to you. I hope you'll consider coming back on board. We have a few more subjects I wanted to touch upon, including the uh, caught between giants, hostage diplomacy and negotiation strategy for middle powers. That's a fascinating paper. I hope it's, it's published soon because we're looking we're looking forward to reading it and hopefully you'll come back and keep sharing your thoughts and ideas with uh, our listeners. Thank you so much, Jason. This was a, an incredible opportunity and I really enjoyed talking to you as always and I'm happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Take care. Thanks. You Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.